Another episode of It Takes a Village, a podcast of Healing Hands International based out of Nashville, Tennessee. My name is Taryn Foster, and I'm joined by my co-host, Mark Gent. Hey, Taryn. Hey. So we're excited today. Uh, we got one of our very on coming on the podcast, Gillian Kelly. Woohoo! In episode 10, we mentioned that this season we want to dive deeper into each one of our four ministries of water, women of hope, the... Hunger to Harvest and Magi. So if you're listening to this and you missed that episode, go back and check it out uh, as you will hear stories of each one of those ministries. Uh, but today we're going to talk about our clean water ministry with Gillian. Taryn, uh, so you've been here, what, almost about three years now? Mm-hmm. And yeah. so you have um, just seen and heard a lot about each one of our ministries. So mm-hmm. before we get into this with you, and just what stands out to you about our clean water ministry in particular? I think the biggest thing that I've noticed is just how it's just such a well-oiled machine, just with all the history, uh, with Joseph Smith spearheading it for about 20 years now. So he's kind of the the brains behind everything. And then then we got Gillian, of course, and Sean and Caleb and James and Haiti and all of our coordinators and all of our teams on the ground working tirelessly all the time to get wells drilled and repaired, which repairs are as important as yeah. drills mm-hmm. or wells drilled. Um, and it's just amazing to see the process in yeah. and out. And I'm behind the scenes, but not as behind the scenes. So I'm excited to talk to Gillian about everything in and out. Yeah. It literally takes a village. It does. To make our clean water ministry happen. And then you're on the end where you get to design all the great stuff and promote it on social media and in our yeah. newsletter. So it's fun. Yeah. So here is our interview with Gillian Kelly. All right. We want to welcome Gillian Kelly to the podcast for the first time. Welcome, Gillian. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Mark. Thanks, Taryn, for having me. Yeah. Yeah, and Gillian drove up this morning all the way from Alabama, made like a two-hour trek, and she holds the current record for driving the longest to be on It Takes a Village. Uh, Gillian, how does it feel to have that very esteemed, prestigious record? I do. I feel like I should get some kind of an award, definitely. Yes, you should. You have a trophy. You should. (laughs) So, hey, tell us a little bit about yourself for our listeners, Um, you know, just where you're from, uh, where you live now, just your family, like what are Gillian's interests, hobbies, passions? Uh, Let's get to know Gillian a little bit. Yeah, for sure. So like you said, I am from Alabama. I am from the thriving metropolis of Gurley, Alabama. Gurley! Wow. <laughs> yep. How Gurley. many people live in Gurley? Not many. Not not a whole lot. So we're a suburb of Huntsville, so it's you know pretty close to a bigger city, but Gurley itself is pretty tiny, and hopefully it will stay that way as long <laughs> as possible, because Huntsville's growing like crazy. Um, so my husband, Jaron, and I live, like I said, in Gurley. He's originally from Enterprise, Alabama. And we met when we were in school in Tuscaloosa. And so we've been back home for a couple of years now. He's a physical therapist, and I obviously work for Healing Hands. I guess you asked also about my interests and stuff. My mom and I actually run a flower farm 
What? In addition to this, yeah. What kind of flowers? So we grow all kinds of stuff for cut flowers. We do different bouquets. We have a bouquet subscription service. We do all sorts of little stuff like that. Who knew? Taryn, did you know that? I actually did. Oh. I may or may not have designed the logo for that. (laughs) (laughs) Taryn's been there from the start. Yeah. Oh, wow. That's awesome. Well, what else? Yeah, so... uh, you and I have this in common, baseball fan. I am a Red Sox fan. I know you are a Dodgers fan, so yes. we have a, have a love of baseball in common. Yes. Not the same team. We will not talk about the 2018 World Series. Yep. Oh, we'll no. let that go. Uh, I would like to talk about it some more, but I, I can understand why you might <laughs> not want to. So. so you went to school in Tuscaloosa, which means you went to? The University of Alabama. C- capital T. H-E, the University of Alabama. So how big of a Crimson Tide fan are you? Pretty big, yeah. I mean, I was there, you know, I guess Saban's still coaching, but he was there, and he and I started roughly the same time at Alabama. So the entire time. Yeah, I've heard him talk about that before, that a lot of his success is due to y'all starting being there about the same time. That's exactly right, yes. You have contributed to his six national championships. Well, that's awesome. That's cool. Financially, certainly, have have contributed to his. (laughs) For sure. For sure. So, uh, Crimson Tide. Well, that's great. Well, and you're a lawyer. So, you're the only lawyer we have on staff here at Healing Hands, but you're not our legal counsel. Um, although you can provide legal advice. So you went to school to be a lawyer. Tell us about that. I did, yeah. So I actually was in Tuscaloosa for my undergraduate and my law degree. Um, I guess the biggest contribution I've made to Healing Hands in terms of being a lawyer is we have a lot more waivers now than we did beforehand. Nice. Love a good waiver. Got to have a good waiver. Um, (laughs) Yeah, so I got interested in law school my junior year of undergraduate and just kind of honestly on a whim was like, hey, I wonder if I could go to law school. And there was a program in Alabama that did allow me to go without taking the LSAT. So I snuck into law school, I like to say. Yeah. (laughs) Um, And interestingly enough, I actually went on my very first mission trip the summer before I started law school. And that really kind of just changed my whole perspective and everything I wanted to do. Um, Mm -hmm. And so that kind of ultimately explains why I'm at Healing Hands instead of practicing full-time right now. So you live in Alabama and you work remotely. And you kind of touched on this just now, but you have a unique story. So you're originally a Walk for Water coordinator. So how did you get into that? Yeah, so I started a Walk for Water when I was the president of the Tide for Christ Student Ministry at Alabama. And so we started doing Walk for Water um, 2000. Maybe I wasn't, yeah. I was actually already in law school when we started Walk for Water in Tuscaloosa. And I did that for, I think, four years. We did four walks in Tuscaloosa and just kind of um, as part of volunteering with Healing Hands, really, they needed some extra help with some walks. And so I started almost like as an ambassador role where I would go to different walks. I would um, do registration, do t-shirts, that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. Essentially what I do now. And I just wasn't on staff. And so after I graduated, we moved back up here. I came on staff part-time. So I got started as a volunteer and have just kind of stuck around until I got hired, basically. So you also wear multiple hats on staff. So you are working with Clean Water and Walk for Water. So tell us about both of those roles and how they 
kind of play together? Yeah, for sure. So Walk for Water is a obviously a large fundraiser for our clean water ministry. And mm-hmm. so that's kind of how, I mean, obviously how those two things work together. Uh, Walk for Water, my role with Walk for Water is as an event coordinator. And so that means largely I'm trying to get new walks, trying to develop our current walks, you know, working and building relationships with our current coordinators, and then going to walks. So just kind of handling a lot of the logistics of the Walk for Water program in general is what I would say kind of my role with Walk for Water is. Mm -hmm. And then for our clean water program, I am um, kind of a coordinator for three of the countries where we drill, Ghana, Zambia, and just currently Nigeria. So Mm -hmm. I'm just starting uh, working with Nigeria. And really what I do there is, like I said, just kind of coordinating, um, kind of processing the requests that we get and then making sure we can fund those. And if we can fund those, then kind of, you know, (laughs) coordinating. I mean, that's really what it is. Just kind of doing what we can to get resources into the hands of our partners around the world who are actually doing this work Mm -hmm. and just kind of being um, their liaison here to help them get what they need to do their job. Having known you for a couple of years now and um, just seeing – uh, your work and hearing about your work, it's it's obvious that you are really passionate about clean water. Like for you, this is more than just a job. Like it's a passion. Where did that come from and uh, how did that passion get started? Yeah, so I would say, I mean, really, like I said, you know, when I first went out of the country, I was in Panama and I was in this um, little village like native village they didn't have any resources anything like that they had this little church um that was in a tree hut you know I mean it was very rural very simplistic and something happened when we were there and one of our team members he broke this chair um and it was like such a silly thing but when he broke that chair the preacher of the church who's this native Panamanian man said it's okay you're in the home of a brother And that really just, I mean, it changed my life just to think that, like, here I am in the jungles of Panama. This man doesn't know me from Adam, but he's my brother. Mm. And that really just changed everything about how I saw the world and about how I thought about the world and the church and how we should be more proactive in helping each other. And so actually, how water plays into it is I went to Haiti Um, As a Walk for Water coordinator, I got to go on a trip, got to see some of the well drilling process done, and just seeing the excitement um, from something like water uh, was really incredible. And I can tell you more about that later as we go. Um, But just seeing, you know, how one of the things we say with Walk for Water is that it all starts with water. And in so many ways, that's really true. You know, our ag ministry, you know, obviously you need water to grow vegetables, you know, and... um, It really just plays into a lot of what we do, and it's a thing that we don't have to think about in America, and that's a true privilege to not have to think about. And so just, I guess, just having my eyes open to the needs of the world really kind of opened that door, and then just having started with Walk for Water is really kind of how water became became the passion. It's awesome to see how God uses other people and their story to impact our own. And it sounds like that's what happened to you in Panama. Um, mm-hmm. Just how, you know, just one comment from that, that gentleman uh, had such a enormous impact 
uh, not only on your like life as a whole, but on your faith. And Absolutely. On the trajectory of where you were going. That's awesome. Absolutely. And you know, that that's the thing about it. You know, I think even something like water and that his comment, you know, he didn't think anything of that comment and it meant the world to me. We don't think about water and it means the world to people that mm-hmm. don't have it. You know, it's right. just, just these little things that happen in the world that are present in the world and, and how God can open our eyes is truly incredible. So switching gears a little bit, um, talking about the history of water, can you tell our listeners about where, when and where it got started uh, at Healing Hands specifically? Yeah, so we actually started drilling and being involved in clean water in the country of Ethiopia in 1999. So we've been we've been at this a while and constantly learning and constantly improving, honestly. Yeah. Uh, we started there with a MANA International Partnership, and then from there moved to Haiti, and just gradually we've added different countries over the past 20-odd years uh, working in clean water. So... Th- there is a global water crisis, and that's that's not something new. It's something that we've all heard about, we've read about, we've seen it on the news. But uh, tell us a little bit about what is happening around the world as it relates to this water crisis that, you know, like you touched on a minute ago, here at home in America, we don't often think about it, but it is really impacting lives around the globe. Yeah, so, I mean, the clean water crisis is a daily struggle for 844 million people. And so mm-hmm. that's the number that's estimated that those people don't have uh, basic water service at their home. And so what basic water service is defined by by the UN is a potable water source within 30 minutes round trip of their home, including their wait time, which is something that um, – just seems unfathomable to me that wait time would be included in part of that um but you know if if you don't have clean water in your village neither does your neighbor or Mm -hmm. you know the next village over and so everybody's typically using the same water source um in these villages and so everybody's got to go at the same time essentially um although i will say we do hear stories regularly from the field where people are getting up, you know, 3 a.m., 4 a.m., and they're walking so that they beat the crowd. Um, And so that's a huge part of the global water crisis, too, is that it's so Mm time-consuming. It's just incredibly time-consuming. And, you know, when you can't get clean water at home, you're having to walk, you know, four miles is the average distance to get clean water. Well, I shouldn't say clean water. We'll get to that in a second. Mm -hmm. To get water. Um, you don't have time to go to school. You don't have time to work. You don't have time to grow food. You don't have time to do all these other things that could improve your health outcomes, your life outcomes. Um, and so it's really all consuming. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and like I said, I shouldn't say clean water because the water that these people are getting is not clean. Um, 485,000 people die every single year from drinking contaminated water. The vast majority of that number are children under the age of five. Um, and so even if you can go get water, there's no guarantee that it's clean because not only are all of the people in a village typically using the same water source, all of the animals are typically using the same water source as well. And if you know much about live, if you know much about livestock, you know that they don't often just drink water when they are uh, by water. So as you can imagine, that water is quickly contaminated. Um, and so, not only is the water the problem, the 
effects of not having water, like I talked about with a lack of education, a lack of resources just in general. That's something that I just did not think about at all before working here, really. Um, It's just so striking to hear all the stats, too. So how many wells have we drilled in the last some odd years? Yeah, so 20, (laughs) yeah, just a little bit over 20, 22. Mm -hmm. Um, We have drilled 1,330 wells in 20 different countries. Amazing. And how many people have been impacted? So that is a great question. (laughs) Um, So ideally, 1,200 people are using a well. Um, that's ideally, that's mm-hmm. not realistically. Right. Um, and so if you just do that math, that works out to be about one, about 1.3 million people. Uh, our estimates are that it's probably much closer to 2 million because like I said, ideally versus realistically, um, right. you know, if there's no other water source, people are going to use it mm-hmm. even if it, even if the well is being overworked. And yeah. so, uh, I would say it's probably close to 2 million people have been impacted by HHI's clean water program. So last year, uh, we had a record-setting year for wells drilled. Um, and tell us a little bit about um, what that was and kind of the process over the last several years, but also just during the, the pandemic since COVID, uh, how, how has the pandemic impacted our ability to drill wells and to reach people? Uh, greatly would be the answer to that question. Um, so in 2021, we did have a record year. We drilled 163 clean water wells, which is incredible. Uh, we just had, were incredibly blessed last year to be able to do that. And a lot of that, I think, was some buildup from 2020 where we couldn't get out and drill. So we only drilled, uh, you know, a small percentage of that number in 2020. And obviously, every well that we can drill is a huge impact and it makes a difference. But, you know, our people on the ground couldn't get out. They couldn't travel around their own countries. Um, you know, drillers weren't working. Nothing nothing was really working, you know, just like it was here, I would say, except a little worse um, in some of those countries because it's already hard to travel to some of these places where our our team is working in different countries. And so, yeah, it had a great impact on us. But I think that because of that, we were able to have an incredible year in 2021. And and so, you know, God works in mysterious ways. And that's something we know we can see. And, yeah, last year was incredible. And hundreds of thousands of lives were impacted by the wells that were drilled just last year. I think that's amazing too, because so many places were shut down and, and work just halted. So just the fact that we were doing so many things was is just incredible to me. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about the process of like the idea to completion of water well drilling, determining location and empowering locals and that kind of thing? Yeah, so for us, we rely so heavily on our team, our partners on the ground. So we have a certain uh, criteria that we look at when we're determining well location. Mm -hmm. And a lot of that is really just, you know, we don't want to expend resources where there are three other wells, maybe in one village. Or we don't want to put wells on private property. You know, we want it to be something that everyone can access and everyone Mm -hmm. has equal opportunity to use. And so we have some criteria that we send to our coordinators who work uh, in the different countries. 
And then they sent us locations. So they're okay. out every day. They're scouting. They know their country, obviously, much better than we do. And um, they know the locations that need water. And so they tell us where to drill, essentially, okay. uh, based on the criteria. And so from there, you know, we assess those requests. We make sure they're in line with the criteria that we've put forward. And we make sure, obviously, that we have the funding. And if all that's a go, then we send the money. And in the majority of countries where we drill, we have independent contractors who drill our wells for us. We have a couple of different countries where the process is a little different, but I would say on the whole, um, using the independent contractors is kind of the process. And then from there, it's, you know, going out and getting a survey done to make sure it's a place you're going to hit water. Mm -hmm. Um, That saves a lot of money if you can do that on the front end. And then the drill rig goes out, puts a hole in the ground. And, um, you know, there are lots of different kinds of wells. Um, We try to mostly do hand pumps. There are some cases, like in Kenya, where primarily you need to use Mm solar-powered pumps just because of the... uh, depth you have to drill to hit water there Mm -hmm. but for the most part we try to use hand pumps and so you know once the the well is actually in the ground then the elements of the well um, the pumping elements obviously get installed and then a concrete base is poured and you're off to the races it's it's a really simple process and I think that's also part of the reason I'm passionate about clean water is because the global water crisis is not something that doesn't have a cure Right. It, it's something that's so easily solved. And if we just keep putting wells in the ground, it'll go away. You yeah. know, I mean, it's not something that we're searching and researching and trying to find an answer for. It's mm-hmm. simple. It's mm-hmm. putting wells in the ground and as many as possible. Yeah, I like to think that, you know, we, we can't reach all 844 million people. I mean, that's 10% of the world's population, but we can reach some. And you guys have done that over the years. So just... Um, just as you think about your job in particular, how much longer will it be until you go operate a drill rig yourself to to put a well in the ground? <laughs> you know, um, I have seen that done in Haiti, and I don't think I want any part of that. It looks very <laughs> scary to me <laughs> uh, when the water just explodes out of the earth. You know, it's yeah. it's really cool, but it's also kind of uh, a little bit terrifying. <laughs> you could be the first lawyer in the world to go drill a rig. Maybe so. Maybe so. You touched on this a minute ago. Um, You know, we go through the process, but then there's this moment that happens when they hit water and then they open up the well to the community. And we've seen pictures of that celebration. We've seen video of that celebration. I remember uh, seeing video from a few years ago when we drilled our thousandth well and there was just such a celebratory moment that it um, it's just really like those people, their lives are, are changed. Talk about that and what you know you have seen and heard just about that moment of celebration when the community gets water. You know, I think my favorite, when I think about this, and, and I sit in a really interesting position in what I do with Healing Hands because I help a lot with our reporting. And so I get to see almost all of the stories that are coming back from the field. And so I see these stories routinely and it's incredible, but I got to witness it when I was in Haiti. And I mean, there's just nothing like it. There's nothing like seeing it because, and I have this a picture as my background on, on my computer and it's these kids and they're actually in Malawi and they're sitting there waiting, watching the drilling rig. And I think to myself when I see that picture, these kids are watching their lives change. 
Like they're getting to actually witness this change in their lives. And that's amazing. But when I was in Haiti, the thing that struck me was, you know, you have to pump for a while to get the water to come up. You got to build up the pressure. But as soon as it comes out, I mean, it's this cheering, singing, dancing. I constantly get pictures back from Ghana of people just jumping and dancing and all around the well. But when I was in Haiti, the thing that struck me the most was that, you know, while the adults were drinking, they were kind of washing their faces, the kids started a water fight. You know, they're, <laughs> they're instantly just playing because they're kids. Yeah. You know, kids are kids anywhere that they go, anywhere that they are. And these kids have never had the opportunity to have a water fight like that. They've always had to conserve that water. It's not been a thing that they can play with. You know, they're not out in the yard like you and I maybe grew up running through sprinklers in the front yard or something like that. But now they can. And that was incredible to me just to witness that, you know, even though these kids didn't grow up with something so basic like I had, now they have that. And they're still using it the same way because kids are just kids, you know. And, and it was an incredible thing to witness. I love that. So, Gillian, we're not alone as an organization in trying to solve this from drilling new wells to repairs. There are so many nonprofits uh, here domestically but also around the world who are doing amazing work thank goodness, um, to really try to help solve this crisis. So if somebody's listening and they decide they want to make a difference, they want to partner, they want to lock arms with Healing Hands, tell us what that entails and how do they go about that? Oh, man, there are so many ways to go about that, which is which is what's incredible about it. I mean, like I s- talked about earlier, it's a solvable problem and all it takes are financial resources. And we have different sponsorship levels of that even. I mean, a well sponsorship level is $7,500. So that is the cost that uh, would provide a brand new well in a village. However, you know, 7500 might be a lot. Um, any amount of money donated goes into our clean water program. So uh, like Taryn touched on earlier, we repair as many wells as possible too. Unfortunately, you know, they're mechanical. They break. It's just something that happens. And so having money that is not dedicated just to drilling new wells allows us to repair broken wells, which is really just a very restorative process. And it's incredibly important um, for, for those people who have experienced clean water and now, it, you know, it's gone away again. And we also do um, water filtration systems. So that, that typically takes place in like a disaster situation as part of our uh, disaster relief ministry or in areas where a well can't be drilled, for instance. Um, So we can give a family a water filtration system and that will, while they may still walk for water, allow for them to have clean water every single day um, as long as they're taking care of that. And those are, you know, $25. So, I mean, it's not like you have to give $7,500 to make an impact on, on the clean water crisis. However, that is our well sponsorship level. Um, and so we do our best to get reporting back to our donors in, in a timely manner. And we think that's incredibly important to do that and to provide you a story uh, of, of the difference you've made. And so, um, you know, partnering on sponsoring a well, helping us do repairs, uh, hosting a walk for water event is a huge way that people can be a part of our uh, solving the clean water crisis um, because that raises funds for our clean water ministry, like I talked about earlier, or, you know, giving money for a water filtration system. We have kids who have hosted lemonade stands to give money for clean water. I mean, it's 
kids are, you know, people are so inventive, so creative with how they get involved with this ministry and how they engage with it. And any amount of help or support or just praying for these people who are walking for water every single day, it makes a big difference. Yeah. And that's something that I thought about when I started here. I was like, how can I make a difference as just one person? Um, And I can't give as much money. I could give, you know, 25 after a period of time. So I think it's really good to share all of the different ways that someone can help if they don't feel like they can give everything. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So in episode 10, we talked about the story of Benita in Haiti and of her journey getting water uh, and then having her life changed from the, the drilled well. So that's just one story of so many that we get here. And is there one story that comes to mind that you can think of that has impacted you in a, in a way? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, like I talked about a little bit earlier, you know, I got to actually witness this in Haiti. But on a day-to-day basis, I get to read every single story that comes through our clean water ministry because I help with our reporting. Mm-hmm. And recently, um, this this well, I think, was partnered up or paired with one of our walk for water locations and it's a church in Nigeria and our coordinator Victor um, wrote his report and was telling about the song that these these uh, church members were singing when their well was drilled and it just struck me as something that was so beautiful um, he, he said that the song they sang essentially said something like you know tears may come at night but there will be joy in the morning our morning has now come and that was something they said about the well, that they saw that as their joy has come in the morning. That was something that had changed their lives. It would change the way that they could evangelize to their community. It would change the way they could reach others. And just just the thought that their morning has come what was incredible to me. I, I loved that, and I've thought about that so much since I read that story. That's beautiful. Gary, thanks so much for coming. Absolutely. Thanks Thank for you being for on the podcast. Me. Thanks for driving up and uh, making this four-hour round trip to be on It Takes a Village. Uh, This has been great. It's been great to uh, let our listeners and our followers hear about you and your story and for them to learn more about clean water. Well, thank you so much for having me, guys. It's been fun. Well, Taryn, that's a wrap for another episode of season two. Another episode in the books. So, Mark, what did you think? Anything stick out to you after talking with Gillian? I think just the stark reminder and reality that 10% of the world's population is affected by the Mm -hmm. water crisis. Mm -hmm. That's a lot of people. Yeah. Yeah. So, when you walk into your church on Sunday morning of, say, 500 people, Mm -hmm. 50 of them, if they're the world's population, would be going down to their lake, their pond, and getting their water from the same source as livestock and animals. Mm-hmm. You know, 50 mm-hmm. out of your church of 500, you know, or do the math. What, however big your church is, however big your community is, 10% of the world's population. That's a lot. Yeah. That's a lot of people. And uh, I think I mentioned this in a previous episode, but it just it reminds me of Matthew 25, uh, when he said, I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. Mm-hmm. And um, the sight and the, w- what I envisioned when Gillian was talking about that celebration moment in a village 
when the, they hit water and it starts coming out of the ground and then they have a ceremony. It's just when she talked about the dancing yeah. of the kids and the families and like everybody's going crazy. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's like, I can just imagine, you know, you think about a football stadium when somebody scores a touchdown and everybody goes nuts. Yeah. I mean, for these people, like that's their touchdown. Yeah. <laughs> that awesome. is their moment to celebrate. And, you know, thinking about the kids having water fights and just because of their excitement mm-hmm. and that they've never had this before. And I, I personally just can't imagine being in those shoes. Right. Yeah. I literally can't imagine that because it's never happened to me. Yeah. And I feel like I put, at least for me, I put blinders on and at sometimes, cause it helps that I work here, but just in my daily life, I don't think about all the people that don't have clean water. We and take it for granted. Yeah. We take it for granted. Just, we use water for everything. Kind of like we were talking about in our, our last episode in episode 10. Yeah, and even right here at home, like not everybody in America has access to clean water. Right. It it is a problem right here at home as well. And when uh, Gillian talked about that moment when we asked her about a story, when she said that they were singing the song, the tears may come at night, but joy has come in the morning. Our morning has come. Mm -hmm. Like that's just a beautiful description of God's love and his mercy and his grace. Uh, that can come through water. So thank you guys so much for joining us and being part of our community here on It Takes a Village podcast. So be sure to subscribe, rate, review, and keep listening to us on the podcast platform of your choice. If you want to learn more about what we do at HHI, visit our website at hhi.org and follow us on social media. Uh, While at it, share it on social media and help us spread the word. Special thanks to Maeva. For creating the original jingle. My Ava. I miss Maeva. him. Used I to need, be on staff here. We need to get lunch with him We soon. need to go back to Baja Burrito. Yes. <laughs> and shout out to Kristen Harper from our office who produces this podcast. And just in closing, we want to really give a special shout out to Mr. Randy Sellers, who's been volunteering in our office for so many years. Uh, he comes in a couple of times a week, and he does so many various things around the office right Taryn he does I mean yeah. I see him he comes in our office he takes out the trash yeah. he does odd jobs in the warehouse from packing medical supplies helping with magi and just re- really whatever sending herring wants him to do so <laughs> thank you Mr. Randy <laughs> thank you Randy that's a wrap so join us next time on It Takes a Village see ya see ya na 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 na